What is up, everybody, and welcome to this Friday edition of the Low Black Show. It is going to be a fun one today, and I've got a little surprise for you. I've got a little surprise to you that for you that we will get to in a little bit. But first, I wanted to talk about this first. I didn't know if I wanted to talk about this at the very end of the show or the very beginning of the show. I couldn't. There was no real way to segue into this. So that's why I was going to talk about it at the beginning of the end. Just end it on that or start it with it. And it's the the whole Chicago Blackhawks situation. I think you can understand or know that I was going to talk about this at some point. So on Wednesday's show, we record these shows a day in advance. So it was recorded on Tuesday. We didn't know really anything. All we knew that from what I read was Stan Bowman stepped down due to the allegations pressed against him and the Blackhawks organization by this John Doe character that we now know is former Blackhawks minor leaguer Kyle Beach, who announced himself as the John Doe Wednesday afternoon, I believe it was. And so the whole thing's going on. Then the the Blackhawks release a statement after all of this. And here's what the statement says. First, we'd like to acknowledge and commend Kyle for his courage in coming forward as an organization of the Blackhawks. Re- reiterate our deepest apologies to to him for what has what he has gone through and the organization's failure to promptly respond to bravery brought bravely brought this matter to light in 2010. It was inexcusable for the then ex- executives of the Blackhawks organization to bela- delay taking action regarding the reported sexual misconduct. No playoff game or championship is more important than protecting our players and staff from a predator from predatory behavior. Blackhawks have implemented numerous changes and improvements in the organization, including hiring new leadership team that is committed to winning championships while adhering to the highest ethical professionals and athletic standards. This is completely different than what was said when this first all came out, where it was all just kind of brushed under the rug kind of a thing. And Frank Cervelli on Twitter, I'm sorry if I said his name wrong, odd reading the statement from the Blackhawks committing Kyle Beach must have missed an apology for making him out to be a liar and calling his claim meritless. This was on, quote, then-executives. This is on executives still in place who missed the mark tonight. And last night, on Wednesday night, there was the World Series. Sporting Kansas City played. They beat the LA Galaxy. And the Blackhawks were playing the Toronto Maple Leafs. Blackhawks lost, unsurprisingly, but they got the first lead of the season. So there was a positive in the game aspect of things. But after the game was over, Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves, two players that were on the team and were two of the figureheads of the team that won the Stanley Cup back in 2010. Jonathan Taves obviously being the captain, Patrick Kane being the best player. So they're going to they're going to get talked about in this whole situation. And the report was, I saw this on Twitter. I flipped back to the World Series. Blackhawks lost, flipped to the World Series, and then saw on Twitter that Patrick Kane will be speaking to the media. He has asked to speak to the media is what the tweet said. I don't know how true that is. <laughs> did did he want to speak to the media as he zoomed in from home because he's on the COVID protocol list. So I don't really know what was going on with that thing. They interviewed Patrick Kane. They interviewed Jonathan Taves. And people, this is just from, I'm trying to talk about this from a non-Blackhawks fan perspective. There have been people that have not liked Patrick Kane for a very long time. Regardless of what he's done on the ice, off the ice, he's been at times a very, very, very shady character, but as a Blackhawks fan, you try to defend him. You're like, oh, I go back, back our players to the hilt and all that kind of stuff. I still believe on the ice, he's the greatest American hockey player of all time. But off the ice, 
He's not been the greatest person of all time. And both him and Taves, when doing this interview thing, they were talking to the media, Patrick Kane said he never knew about it. Patrick Kane said that he hung out with Kyle Beach all the time during the 2008-2009 training camp. Kyle Beach got drafted by the Blackhawks in 08, never actually played a game for the Chicago Blackhawks organization as the, the main team. He played for the Rockford Icehawks for a little bit. Now he's playing over in Germany. I can't remember what team he said he was playing for, but I watched a little TSN thing that he did last night, or at least he did it yesterday, but I watched it, got to watch it actually last night to hear his interview. And then Taves steps up, and Taves says he knew about it in 2011. The first time he heard about it was in 2011. So if Patrick Kane, who hung out with Kyle Beach during a, a span of time when this was all going on, and Jonathan Taves knew about it, Patrick Kane said he didn't know about it, Duncan Keith said he didn't know about it. If the captain knows, there's going to be more players that know about it. I'm not saying every single player on the team knowed, no, knowed, knew about this whole situation, but I would say there's a fair few players because not everybody is in the same groups. Not everybody hears the same stories, but I would suspect most players on the team knew about this. And watching these interviews yesterday, watching Taves and Keith or uh, Kane talk about this, nothing they said was believable whatsoever. And I don't know what their thought process was going into this situation in regards to the interviews, but not one thing they said was like, I believe him 100%. And then to couple on that, what what really put the final nail in the coffin in regards to this whole situation and people not liking players on that team, both, and I'm saying both of them, said Stan Bowman, who was the GM at the time, who just stepped down that we talked about on Wednesday, both of them said he was a great person. In this whole situation that's been going on, there's a few things you cannot say. That's one of them. (laughs) And it's not just, like, Blackhawk fans have their own feelings about Stan Bowman in regards to what he's done in the front office, but from what this whole situation is, you can't go on national TV and say, oh yeah, Stan Bowman, great person. You can't do that. And what else you cannot do, and this is what Jonathan Taves said, I can't really remember if Kane said this or not. Taves said when you're folk, winning a Stanley Cup pretty much, and I'm hyper, uh, hyperbolizing here, or whatever you want to call it, paraphrasing, winning a cup is more important than what was going on behind the scenes. When you're focused on winning a cup, these kind of things get swept under the rug. It's basically what Jonathan Taves said. And watching Kyle Beach's interview on TSN, that kind of was reiterated when he was talking about Joel Quenville, who was coaching for the Florida Panthers that same night, which I don't know how it happened. Like, I was surprised going into last night. I it didn't even register that he'd be coaching last night. And then I saw over Twitter, Joel Quenville's on the, he's in the, he's in the rink. He's coaching for the Florida Panthers. Like, I was shocked that he wasn't suspended I assumed that, even though I never got an update about it, but I assumed that Joel Quenville was getting suspended. I was, I would, <laughs> that was the least thing that I expected was that he get suspended. Fired is what I more expected, but at the very least suspended for a very extended period of time. And everything that these guys did on the ice in regards to winning these three Stanley Cups over this five-year period, it's pretty tarnished right now. And again, people didn't like Patrick Kane Going into this whole situation, I don't think him or Taves covered themselves in any glory whatsoever in this whole situation. 
both seemed like they really didn't know what to say. Both of them seemed like they weren't telling the truth 100%. There's a lot of uhs and a lot of stuttering in the entire thing. It just did not come off as believable whatsoever. And if you go on Twitter, which is a cesspool to begin with anyways, it's very negative towards those guys, and rightfully so. And Kyle Beach, for coming out and saying all this, and I've heard, I was talking to a friend yesterday, and it was about like how this all come out 11 years later, and I was talking to my dad about it as well. We don't really know what goes on in these types of situations. Never been privy to a situation like this. Never had this in a locker room before or anything like that. But you have to put yourself in the mind of a 20-year-old when you're around teams, you're a rookie, you're new to the situation, you're new to the facilities and all that. How hard it's going to be to tell people what went on in this whole situation. But he, apparently he did. From what he has said, he did. And no one reacted. And not only that, they allowed the guy who I, I can't remember his name to save my life. The I can't remember his name. They, they said you can either get fired or step down. He stepped down, but was still allowed to go around the championship parades. After this happened, holding the Stanley Cup, having his day with the Stanley Cup. And now it's come out to the forefront because, like he said, what Kyle Beach was saying, that he finally had the confidence to do it because I guess this guy for the Blackhawks organization did this to a 16-year-old kid in Michigan as well. So this is what caught Kyle Beach to kind of look at this all over again about we need to address this more. And the Blackhawks did little to nothing the entire situation. And this has been going on for a few months now. I think it dated back to like May of this year when the first reports came out about this whole situation. But now it's gone haywire. It's gone nuclear. And rightfully so. And firing Bowman or him stepping down or whatever happens is a step in the right direction. Not just, I'm not talking about this from a fan's perspective, okay? I know that's what it's going to sound like. Oh, finally they got rid of Stan Bowman. No, this isn't just about what he's been doing as a GM, the person needed to go. And there's going to be more heads that roll, and rightfully so. And, yeah, it's it's just not great. And I was expecting a lot more from Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane, more so Jonathan Taves because he's the captain. He's been the captain. He was the captain when this whole situation went down. He was the captain when... Uh, Beach got drafted. He's been the captain since, I think, 2008, 2009, or 07, 08, whichever one. He was the captain in 08 when he got drafted. And he did not do well doing the interview last night. It just sound, it just came off bad. It came off wrong. And this whole thing's not going to end anytime soon, and it shouldn't. And this makes it hard to be a Blackhawks fan. It really does. Especially when your favorite player growing up was Patrick Kane and was this situation that was going on where he apparently knew Kyle Beach but never knew about it. I don't know if I necessarily believe it or not. I'm not really sure. Again, we can only we only really know what's going to get told to the people because we weren't there. But man, this whole situation sucks on every single front. And I'm glad it's not going to end anytime soon because there needs to be some massive clear outs with all of this. 
And there's all these things of what what should happen to the players, what should happen to the coaches, what should happen to the, the front office staff who was involved in all this situation. I don't have the answers for that. I really don't know. Suspensions will happen. Firings will happen. But I don't have a really firm answer of what is going to happen. The fact of the matter is, no one did anything, really. When he came forward about it, they said, hey, dude, you could step down or you can get fired. I'll step down. Okay, but we'll allow you to be a part of the championship parade. While this 20-year-old kid sitting at home watching all this, and as Kyle Beach said, felt insignificant, didn't feel important to the Blackhawks organization, felt like it was swept under the rug because, again, winning a championship is more important than what was going on behind the scenes. And what mattered to Kyle Beach, what mattered in the grand scheme of things, winning a championship was not as important. And that was one of the things Jonathan Taves said that he really messed up on last night. One of the many. It's not the only thing he messed up on, what he was talking about. But goodness gracious. I don't really know what's going to happen here. I really don't. I was... I. I didn't really have any re- or any idea what we were going to talk about for this. I'm just ranting right now. I don't even have anything in front of me at this point. It's just me ranting. Apart from the Blackhawks' statement that was complete BS. But yeah, I give 100% condolences to Kyle Beach. Screw the Blackhawks, really. And I know there could be way worse things you could say about the Chicago Blackhawks at this point in time, but that's all I'm going to say on the on the... the the show, like in person, I'll probably say stuff a little bit different, but I don't really cuss too much. I'll say like the certain ones, but I won't say drop the big heavy hitter ones right now. But yeah, I, Kyle Beach coming forward is massive, and I'm glad he did it. Regardless if it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago or yesterday, the fact he came forward at all takes a shit ton of courage. And I commend him for that 100%. And I'm sorry for him and his family and everybody involved in that, that the Blackhawks acted like complete dickheads and couldn't handle this like a normal organization. It's like Washington football team level stuff we're going with here. There's just a cloud over the Blackhawks organization, and rightfully so. And I don't know if it'll clear up anytime soon, and it probably shouldn't. Like, the legacies of these players, everything they did, the coaches, players, everything that they did on the ice, winning three Stanley Cups, all tarnished. Regardless if people view it like that, regardless if they're actually taken away or not, which I doubt it, but you never know. It's tarnished. Not for what they did on the ice, it's for what they didn't do off the ice for why it's tarnished. And as a kid that grew up watching this and watching Patrick Kane score against the Philadelphia Flyers in the Stanley Cup Final in 2010, not knowing it, completely oblivious to what was going on behind the scenes. It's hard. Let's put it like that. And again, I know not a lot of people like Patrick Kane, and this gives them more and more reasons to dislike Patrick Kane from what he said last night. That you can't go... Regardless of what you actually think on national television, you cannot say Stan Bowman was a great person. That can't happen. It can't. It's, it, you can't say that. 
And it's a complete and utter mess at this point. And I feel like I'm just repeating myself because I'm still just in awe of the whole situation. We didn't really talk about it that much on Wednesday because we didn't have any of the information or Tuesday going into Wednesday because we didn't have the information that we did at this point in time. We are, it's Thursday afternoon at this point. Kyle Beach has revealed himself. The Blackhawks players have made statements. But more information about Bowman's come out. But yeah, I don't know how, the, just on a, ten, a random thing here, I don't know how the rest of the show goes on, really. <laughs> Which doesn't really matter, but this is going to be hard to transition from this. It's just a complete and utter mess. I'm glad it's finally getting talked about. If it ever got talked about at all, I'm glad it's at least happening. There was a chance that we never know about it. Like, if the Blackhawks in the front office had their way, this would never have been talked about. Ever. It wasn't talked about until now. This is 11 years after they won the Stanley Cup. And now we're finally hearing about it. Goodness gracious. But yeah. That's all I can really say on the matter at this point in time. We, I don't have any information about it. They're not going to really release anything that much. I know um, the dude, what's his name? Rick Westfield, the guy at TSN that interviewed Kyle Beach. He did a full story on it. If you want to search his thing up, you can go look at the whole thing on the internet we're not going to get into the graphic details about it but those are available for you it's just not great because when I first saw it it was kind of like front office terrible could the players have done more yeah maybe some of the players didn't know about it but then after seeing everything that happened yesterday listening to Kane and Taves listening to Kyle Beach, more people knew than what I was originally giving them credit for. And I'm not saying he ever made it up. We never said that. But I'm just saying I don't know. I didn't know if any of the players, because you're in different circles, not a lot of things get said around locker rooms. Now this is me coming from a football locker room with uh, about 50 times more people. But good Lord. This is a mess. Every I'm pre, most people knew about this in the Blackhawks organization, and no one did anything. Most, if not all. And Kane and Taves talking yesterday told me that pretty much. But we'll see. We'll see how this whole situation unfolds. It's not going to be pretty. There's going to be heads rolling, and rightfully so. But good lord. On the ice, it was hard enough to be a Blackhawks fan. Now, I don't even know if you can go out there and say you're a Blackhawks fan to the national public. Because it's going to be, how can you be a fan of a team that hid this? And all of it's coming so fast that you have to, like, sit back and go, wow. All these years, it was so good. It was really so bad (laughs) underneath everything. But, man... Let's move on to another topic here real quick. I wa- This is why I wanted to end the show with it, because I didn't know how we were going to transition. <laughs> and it's hard to transition from talking about something like that, but I feel like it needs to be at the front of the show versus the end of the show. 
something that, like what happened then, gets brushed under the carpet. Now, it wasn't going to be brushed under the carpet. We're still going to talk about it for 20-plus minutes or however long we've been talking about this. But it was going to be at the end. But I feel like this is something that we needed to talk about. As I started the show, I was like, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are we going to talk about this at the beginning or the end? Beginning or end? Beginning or end? Then beginning. Because it just kept coming in. It was like, oh, my God. This is a mess, and it needs to be talked about. But moving on from that, attempting to move on from that, we're going to talk about more football here today to try and lighten the mood a little bit. But I am intrigued, and we'll be following this Blackhawks thing as the days, months, maybe years go on to see what the implications are for everybody involved in this whole situation. Time will tell. Time will tell on this. But in regards to football, on a positive note, I guess you could say, Tom is back on me as the <laughs> as his pick master. Remember how bad we've been the past recent weeks, apart from last week, because we obviously didn't do anything last week? He's back on me. Now, he says he forgot about it. Texted me on Saturday morning about it. I don't know. Maybe he just didn't feel comfortable with me doing it anymore. But I'm back, baby. I'm 100% back in. We're 14th out of like 50 people or something. So we got... Or 13th or something. So we've got a little ways to go. But having a good week, we could bounce back and be perfectly fine. And I'm really glad we didn't do anything last week because I was down on confidence. And we talked about games that were happening that did not come close to happening whatsoever. Terrible game. Cincinnati being the main one. (laughs) 28 points was the spread on that one. And they won by 7 against Navy, who gives up about 40 points a game, and you scored 27 against them. We obviously talked about Florida LSU. We haven't talked about that game in about a week, so I thought we'd bring that up to the forefront again. Georgia and Florida are playing this week, and I saw a stat or a thing on Instagram the other day or yesterday. Every year the Braves have been to the World Series. Florida has beaten Georgia. Every year the Braves have been to the World Series. Florida has beaten Georgia. Georgia is a 14-point favorite Going into this game, Florida is coming off a bye and a much-needed bye. Remember we were talking about that coming off a loss like they did against LSU. They needed some sort of thing to get the engines revving again, and now they're playing in Jacksonville against Georgia. 14 is the line. I don't know who's going to be starting for the Florida Gators in this game, whether it's Emory Jones or Richardson. Richardson finished the game against LSU, but he didn't really cover himself in that much glory either. He threw two interceptions in the game as well. But he did lead the team in rushing, got a touchdown there. Three passing touchdowns more with Emory Jones one, which is a pretty lucky touchdown if we're being honest because it was kind of just a Hail Mary to the corner of the end zone. But hey, we're treating this like Aaron Rodgers. That was the best gosh darn throw I've ever seen in my freaking life. Good Lord. Gotta love the Hail Mary that it was completely planned like that and completely worked exactly how they wanted it to. Because if you lob, didn't lob it towards the end zone, you know, hey, I give it. he couldn't have caught it if you didn't throw it. He couldn't have caught it if you didn't throw it. But there's another other really, really fun games this week. And we're going to go over some of the games that I'm confident in or decently confident in going into this weekend. There are games I'm not confident in that we will also talk about as well. And some games that I'm excited for that you might not have really thought about this weekend. But one game I'm excited for is Pitt and Miami. And because of the fact that... Kenny Pickett is a baller. We knew this last where not I was gonna, I almost said the start of the season. We did not know that at the start of the season. Kenny Pickett 
has had the biggest turnaround out of any player, I would argue, in college football. Biggest surprise in college football? Kenny Pickett. I mean, I guess you could also argue like DJU and Spencer Rattler being as bad as they've been, but Kenny Pickett, how good he's been, has been a revelation pretty much. He'd never thrown more than 13 passing touchdowns in a season. He did that twice. He threw 12 the season prior. Now he's back and has thrown 23 touchdowns with one interception to his name this season. And against teams that other players have struggled against, like Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech, Clemson, he's balled out. Now, if they did not somehow weirdly lose to Western Michigan, Kenny Pickett might be the favorite for the Heisman. But the fact that they did, that's going to hurt him a little bit. The other quarterbacks I've seen for the Heisman this year, Corral, Rattler, not not Rattler, uh, Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, and Pickett. Stroud, remember him? The guy that we found the Twitter account that was just basically just bashed him on a daily basis, or not daily, hourly basis on how bad he is, and now the Twitter account doesn't exist anymore, sadly. But Pitt-Miami is going to be a fun one. Nine points is the spread here. Miami had a nice game last week against NC State where they won. They've had a couple really, really close games recently. They lost Virginia by two on a missed field goal. Then they lost North Carolina by three, and they just got over NC State. Now they're on the road against Pitt, who has been on fire as of late on the offensive side of the ball, scoring above 27 points every game this season. Scored 52 against Georgia Tech, 20 against Vautech, and then 27 against Clemson. Miami, on the other hand, has not. I mean, they scored a ton of points, but their defense has just been giving up a ton of points as well. You look at their past few games, they've allowed 30, 45, and then 30 again. Pitts hasn't allowed over 20 or over 21 points since the Western Michigan game where they allowed 44. <laughs> but that, wait, we're not talking about that game. We're talking about ACC opponents here. Pitt averages 523 yards a game on offense. That is utterly ridiculous. Averages 45 points a game. Now, they did have one game where they scored 77 points. That little skews it a little bit. But still, then their defense has only given up just under 20 points a game, whereas Miami's given up 30 and scoring 32 themselves. You have Tyler Van Dyke at quarterback, who's looked pretty good since taking over the starting ranks from an injured Derek King. He has nine touchdowns, three picks on the season. Had a nice game against NC State and had a nice game against North Carolina as well. Neither team runs the ball insanely, like an insane team, but they're still decent running the ball. Miami averages 151 yards a game. Pitt averages like 174 yards a game. Nine points at Pitt. I do like the Pitt Panthers, and I think Kenny Pickett will have himself a very nice game, and Pitt's defense will step up and take down Tyler Van Dyke or Trevor Van Dyke and the Miami Hurricanes, so I think Pitt will be able to cover that game. Another game I'm extremely excited for. Oh, man, this one's going to be an exciting one. Iowa and Wisconsin. We're going to have like a 6-9 to nine or a 10-7 to seven game on our hands this Saturday, ladies and gentlemen. This game is going to be ass. Good Lord. I am not looking forward to this game whatsoever. Iowa is favored to win, not by the spread, but by Michigan or uh, ESPN's matchup predictor thing. Like, I, this game's going to suck complete ass. Why? I don't want to watch this game. A few years ago, they tried to test my loyalty when they threw on Alabama and LSU when Joe Burrow was there at the same freaking time as Wisconsin-Iowa. I think that game ended 14-7. to Like, this game is boring. And then you've got no nothing 
going on either offense. I mean, they both got pretty decent running backs, but Graham Mertz and Spencer Petras, good freaking lord. We got a quarterback matchup of the century going on here. Iowa is a good, they've had a good defense. They got absolutely blitzed by Purdue last week or two weeks ago because they had a bye last week. Wisconsin's got an insane run defense, averages 53 yards a game given up. It's the least in the nation, if I'm not mistaken. Like, good lord, this game's going to suck ass. As an over-under of 36 and a half. 36 and a half is the over-under here. That is miserable. <laughs> that is a miserable scoreline. Good lord. I don't I don't know if I want to watch this game Saturday. It's going to be a tough one. It's going to be... If you want to watch good football, good offensive football, I would very much recommend you stay away from this football game with at all costs. At all costs, do not watch Iowa-Wisconsin. <laughs> but if you want to watch, hopefully, a good offensive showing from at least one team, watch Cincinnati-Tulane. I mean, Cincinnati had a really rough weekend last week against Navy. Hopefully, for their sake, their offense wakes up a little bit more. Because Tulane, though they barely lost to Oklahoma week one, they give up almost 500 yards a game on defense. <laughs> they This game should be bad. They're 1-6 on the season this year. That one win coming against Morgan State. Like, they are not a good football team. You look at their recent games, apart from UAB, they've allowed 40 points in their last three games, and, and including UAB, allowed 40-plus points in the last four out of their last five games. That is insane. Cincinnati's beaten every team apart from 1-6 Navy by double digits. A team that gives up almost 500 yards a game total, and then someone who gives up 300 yards a game passing and almost 200 yards a game rushing, Cincinnati should obliterate Tulane. If you want to watch, like, we talked about Iowa-Wisconsin being, like, the death to all offenses game. This is one where you're going to watch at least one offense look really good because Cincinnati's defense is really good, and Tulane just can't, won't be able to do anything I would expect, at least in this game. Other games that should be exciting, Iowa State-West Virginia always seems to be a pretty exciting game. Arizona State-Washington State, we already talked about this, so Jaden Daniels hasn't thrown a touchdown in back-to-back -back games at all this year. He has six touchdowns to his name. Two of them, all six of them have come in three games, none of them after each other. Like, I know there was a bye week last week, but he threw a two touchdowns against Utah the week before. So if he threw a touchdown in this game, it would be the first time this season he's thrown back-to-back -back games, had a passing touchdown in back-to-back -back games, which does not show how talented he actually is because he's a very, very talented quarterback with the passing numbers. In regards to the touchdowns, just haven't really been there this year. Oklahoma-Texas Tech... Could be a fun one. Caleb Williams and Oklahoma had a very rough game, a lot rougher than what they were expecting against Kansas last week. Now they're back at home. Texas Tech had a decent game against Kansas State. At least it started off decent. I'm pretty sure it ended horrifically, but it started off good. <laughs> then what would the final score end up being? Oh, 24 to 25. They started off good, and then they just let it go. They killed Kansas better than Oklahoma could. And yeah, it's two good offenses with two not very good defenses, which is just pretty stereotypical Big 12 player apart from Iowa State, who's got a good defense. But that could be a fun one offensively-wise, offensive-wise. Georgia-Florida, we already talked about that game a little bit. Every year the Braves made the World Series, Georgia has lost to Florida. So it's like you make one rule, you got you made a World Series, okay? Well, we got to take something away from the people of Georgia. But with how Florida's offense, though it moves really well, 
where when they turn the ball over as much as they do, it kind of screws things over. And they haven't played defense like Georgia. They haven't. They played Alabama really close. That that's not Georgia. Georgia is the number one defense of the nation by a pretty wide margin. And I don't care who's starting quarterback. They're gonna throw three turnovers and throw three interceptions this game. Maybe as a team, three interceptions. But I'm very intrigued to see how because if the record stays, if it stays and we got Florida beating Georgia, I will be absolutely shocked. The thing that stay keeps Florida in this game is Georgia's offense isn't that great. They got two good running backs, but their quarterback situation is kind of a mess. I don't know if it's going to be Daniels or if it's going to be Bennett starting this weekend. But again, JT Daniels is one of the best quarterbacks in the draft, even though Stetson Bennett's got a, a, a better better arm and um, it's faster. But JT Daniels is the number one guy in the draft class <laughs> for Georgia anyways. Other games, Oklahoma State-Kansas, I guess, could be fun. you watching Kansas play Oklahoma last week. Maybe they exerted all their energy against Oklahoma. But, hey, it could be a pretty decently fun one. Auburn-Ole Miss will be fun. That's two good offenses right there. This is the game Matt Corral. We already talked about this on Wednesday. But Matt Corral's lowest career passing numbers as a full-time starter at Ole Miss came against Auburn last year. He had like 156 yards passing in that game. He had 185 yards last week going to Auburn. This will be a very, very tough matchup for the Rebels, but I think they can pull it out. I think they can. Kentucky-Mississippi State. Kentucky coming off a bye. They had a really good game against Georgia. Mississippi State played Alabama, or not Alabama close. They got a blitter bear. I was kind of combining the Tennessee game and the Alabama game, or Tennessee game against Alabama and the Mississippi State against Alabama. Uh, Ole Miss, or Mississippi State got obliterated <laughs> by Alabama. But they're coming off a win against Vanderbilt. They beat, I was thinking of Texas A&M because Texas A&M beat Alabama. Remember that, that whole situation. But they've had a lot of close games this year. Apart from the Alabama game. You look at the four of the last five games, the two they lost in there, apart from the Alabama game, of course, were 28-25 and 31-29 against LSU and Memphis. Kentucky in this game is favored by one and a half. They're on the road. ESPN gives Mississippi State a 53% chance to win this game, basically 54% chance to win this game. That'll be fun. I'm very excited for this one. As we know, Mississippi State does not believe that much in defense, but it's not that bad <laughs> comparatively this to recent years. They give up 327 yards a game. They have some decent players in this team. Charles Cross is one of the better off to tackles in next year's draft. Just better off to tackles in the nation. But they're very, very, and when I say very, they're very one-dimensional. They average 48.7 yards rushing per game. That is ridiculous. We, we talked about LSU when they played Florida being extremely one-dimensional. That number is terrible. <laughs> I don't know where, it, I'm trying to get it to where, where it looks like in the rankings of the nation. Unsurprisingly, it ranks dead last in college football. 48.7 yards a game. That is like, that is almost 30 yards less than the next closest team in Purdue. There are two teams that are, two teams under 75 rushing yards per game. It's Purdue and Mississippi State. Oh my goodness, they are terrible running the ball. I knew they were bad. I did not know they were that bad running the football. Any other games? Oh, Penn State, Ohio State. I'm excited to watch this game as Penn State takes on Illinois and plays at the big house this weekend because Sean Clifford, or not Sean Clifford, Sean Clifford, you know, the greatest quarterback of all time. James Franklin, the head coach, he's definitely not going to USC, right? He's definitely not. He's definitely not, right? 
He's definitely not. No, the media's not his head. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. He's staying at Penn State. Penn State life for this guy. Yeah. Media's definitely not getting to him. He's totally got this weekend's matchup down. Going to play Illinois in Michigan. It's going to be a very great game we got going on here. But no, in all seriousness, this should be fun. This is three really, really good wide receivers. Got the Ohio State duo of Olave and Wilson, Jahan Dotson for Penn State, the two great quarterbacks, Sean Clifford, you know, Heisman favorite Sean Clifford, and C.J. Stroud, a not very good quarterback, as Twitter has told me. So I'm excited for that one. That will be actually pretty fun. Uh, Notre Dame, North Carolina. North Carolina is coming off a bye week this week. Offenses look good, but they've lost a few games really bad this year. Notre Dame's coming off a win against USC, right? Yeah, they beat USC last week. And now they're back home, back at home. 11th ranked North Carolina, unranked North, or geez, 11th ranked Notre Dame, unranked North Carolina, battling it out in front of touchdown Jesus. Should be fun. That'll be a fun one. Utah, UCLA, don't know if Dorian Thompson Robinson's playing or not. That'll be big to deciding who can win this game. I'm not saying that Utah wouldn't win whether or not DTR was there or not, but it definitely helps UCLA's case if he is there because he's one of the better quarterbacks in college football. And if he can't play, that kind of hurts UCLA's chances of winning this game. And Utah is already a tough place to play. And now without your starting quarterback, that's a uphill battle that got even more uphill <laughs> with him being out. And any more other games? Oh, BYU-Virginia could be pretty fun. Virginia's got a very good offense with Brennan Armstrong spearheading that quarterback, running back, whatever you want to call him. He does everything for Virginia's offense. Uh, San Diego State-Fresno State. Good defense, good rush offense versus a good pass offense at Fresno State. That should be a close one. Stanford-Washington should be an interesting one as well. Any other ones that I really say you should watch this week? Not really. Is there? Michigan, Michigan State, completely forgot about that one. That'll be a very run-heavy game. That game should probably end. That game should end pretty quickly. Michigan is favored in that one at Michigan State. That game's always fun. Michigan, Michigan State's always a really fun one. Four-point favorites for the Wolverines in this one. You got Kenneth Walker, who's three yards away from a thousand yards rushing on the season. You got Blake Corum, who's at seven hundred and thirty yards rushing, seven hundred twenty-nine. But we're rounding up with ten touchdowns on the season. Both teams average well over, or at least Michigan, over 200 yards rushing on the season. I just said well over. Penn State, Michigan State averages 200 yards rushing a game. Michigan averaged 253 yards a game. Neither team passes the ball exceptionally well, but I'd say Michigan State definitely does that better. Michigan averages about 190 yards a game passing. Defensively, Michigan State can't seem to stop anybody. They give up about 400 yards a game. Offense are defensively over 400 yards. Michigan gives up around 300 yards a game. But I, this will be fun. 11 o'clock kick for this one, but it'll be very fast because it's going to be a whole hell of a lot of running in this game. I like Peyton Thorne. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He's probably the second best quarterback in the Big Ten this season. But Cade McNamara has not been asked to do anything this year. The closest time you could see him actually have to put a little bit of effort in was against Wisconsin because they have the number one rush defense in college football. But even then, Michigan still won by double digits and this one's interesting. Michigan State, one of the bigger surprises this year. Michigan, not as big of a surprise, but a decent surprise to say the least. Michigan State was expected to be bad. Remember, we talked about Phil Steele projecting them to finish last in the Big Ten West this year, or Big Ten East, my bad. I know my Cardinal directions. And now they're undefeated, ranked eighth in the nation, and battling top 10 ranked Michigan as well at home 
but they're underdogs. So we'll see how that one goes. That that will be an exciting one. If I had to choose games just purely off excitement and fireworks, I mean, again, Tulane Cincinnati <laughs> should be an exciting one, at least from one standpoint. <laughs> Michigan, Michigan State should be a really fun one. Pitt, Miami, watch Kenny Pickett. That game's at 11 on ACC Network, which sucks complete ass. Who wants to watch on ACC Network? Florida, Georgia, fun game. I mean, again... We're going to keep saying it because it might happen. Every year, Braves went to the World Series. Florida's beating Georgia. So we'll have to see about that. Uh, then we got Oklahoma, Texas Tech. Two great offenses. Two good offenses battling it out there. Ole Miss, Auburn. Auburn will be a very fun one as well. Mississippi State, Kentucky could actually be pretty fun. Ohio State, Ohio State. Did I say that twice? Penn State, Ohio State. North Carolina and Notre Dame. And then we have any like outside of the top 25 games that I'm really, really excited for. Oh, UNLV Nevada, you want to see fireworks there as well. Nevada should score about 100 points in that game because Carson Strong, Romeo Dubs, Cole Turner, they should just explode in that game. And that's about it. Florida State Clemson. <laughs> but the chance to see Clemson be 500 for the first time when it feels like forever, maybe that one will be pretty fun. Discounting the start of the season. That does not count where you go, oh, well, Logan, they were 0-0 zero at, zero at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, shut up. I don't care. Or they were 1-1 one one after they lost to Georgia and then won the next week. I don't care. Middle of the season is what I'm talking about. Middle of the season. But is that it? Are those games that I'm all excited about? Not really a lot of exciting games. You see USC, Arizona's going to be fun. I guess. Jeez, we're struggling. <laughs> I'm just psyched for the Iowa-Wisconsin game. Goodness gracious, that game's going to be awesome. Over under of 36 points. Barn burner. I'm actually predicting like a 13 to 10 score. <laughs> I, I will be shocked if they reach the over in that game. I will be floored. Not even shot. I will be floored <laughs> if they reach the over. But moving on to the other NFL, the other football we've got going on. We've got NFL stuff, and we got Packers Cardinals tonight. What the hell is this? What happened to backup quarterbacks playing each other on Thursday Night Football and Browns-Broncos? Why now do we have one of the best matchups of the season happening on Thursday Night Football? This floored me. I saw it on TV last night watching the World Series, and it popped up and said Thursday Night Football. I thought this was just like an afternoon Sunday game. Not Thursday Night Football. From the standard of football we've had on Thursday Night Football, you can forgive me for saying, oh, yeah, this is probably going to be a terrible game. Why would I want to watch this game? Like, we actually had to sit through watching Case Keenum and Teddy Bridgewater play football. What? Why were we in do? Why did we have to do that? Why was that allowed to happen? Like, next week, we got the Jets led by Mike White and maybe Joe Flacco versus the Colts. That's Thursday night football for you. Not Cardinals, Packers, a team combined records of 13 and 1. What? Excuse me. But then they were like, okay, this isn't Thursday Night Football enough. So Devontae Adams is out. Then we've got Alizard out. Marcus Valdez-Scantling's out. J.J. Watt's out. Packers D coordinator's out. <laughs> That's Thursday Night Football. If we're going to get good teams, at least we have to see their backups, right? That's the rule. I don't make the rules. Thursday Night Football did. You want to play two terrible teams, but you got two good teams... Well, then kick them all out due to injury. I'm really hoping for a Jordan Love versus Colt McCoy matchup. Is Colt McCoy still the back of the Cardinals? I believe he is. 
It used to be Brett Hundley, but he's not there anymore. Yeah, it's Colt McCoy. And Chris Strievler, the guy that was on the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Remember we talked about him not too long ago? <laughs> we talked about the Grey Cup up in Canada. But that'll be a beautiful game. Cardinals are favored by six, unsurprisingly. But the Packers, I think I saw, are 6-0 and without Devontae Adams. So if the Packers just wanted to give Devontae Adams like the Bills or something, I'd be perfectly cool with that because obviously they're better with him. They've never lost a game with him. They've lost games with Devontae. I don't know. Not looking good. I'd get rid of him soon if I were you, the Packers. Man. But speaking of the Bills, they're playing the Dolphins. This has been a game that has been kind of seen as a bye week ever since Josh Allen's been in the league. They lost the first time they played this team. And then when they played them again, the last game of the season, on Kyle Williams' last game in the NFL, they they obliterated them. Like, torched them. Josh Allen had his best game of his career, statistically, against the Miami Dolphins on that day. And ever since then, this is what we're looking at for Josh Allen against the Miami Dolphins. Like, it's so one-sided. It's like It's an insane story that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Like, here's some of the things. The Dolphins are 6-0 all time on Halloween games. But the Bills have scored an average of 40, almost 41 points in their last three games versus the Dolphins. They've outscored Miami 122-54. to Josh Allen is the only player in NFL history with 200-plus pass attempts and 100-plus passer rating versus the Dolphins in his freaking career. There was something else here. Yeah, here it is. Josh Allen has 22 touchdowns and 5 picks against the Dolphins in his 6-1. Now, this last game against Miami, he didn't play particularly well, but hey, they didn't need to. They won 35 to nothing. They beat them down with Josh Allen and them not playing their best football. Now, before the te- I mean even with the Texans game, or Titans game, they were playing really well. They lost by 3 points, still scored 31 points. Like they're playing really good football and at the time they played the Dolphins earlier this season, they were not playing good football. They just lost to the Steelers, played terrible, and then looked pretty bad against the Dolphins. Which, after the game, my dad and I were talking. It was like, well, if you can score 35 points and not look very good, that's a pretty good sign. And out to keep the other team from not scoring, what are you going to look like when you're at your best? And then we saw that later in the season. And now they're coming off a bye. They're wearing their beautiful retro uniforms. They're favored in this game. I guess I haven't seen what the line is. They're favored by... <laughs> hmm. <laughs> they're favored by 14, which I guess is, <laughs> is expected at this point. But man, 14-point line. Double-digit lines in the NFL scare the shit out of me. I don't like double-digit lines <laughs> in the NFL. Like I've famously, we famously went to the Bills Vikings game when the Bills are 14 and a half point underdogs. The Bills beat them. Now, this Dolphins team is complete ass, so I'd be compl- really surprised if they pulled that one out of their ass. They're losing the Jaguars. They've lost the to- the Falcons. Now, granted, they have had some close losses. They're one and six, but they've had some close games, like we said with the Jaguars and Falcons. But they lost the Colts by 10. They lost the Raiders by 3. Should have probably beat the Raiders. Took them, though, I think, overtime, or at least close to overtime. So maybe 1-6 is a little unfortunate for them. But the whole Deshaun Watson thing still looming over their heads. So will they be able to concentrate on that? Two was an amazing quote of, I don't not feel wanted. But what? What does that even mean? <laughs> I don't not feel wanted? 
Well, obviously you don't feel wanted then if you're going to say a stupid quote like that. What the hell is that? <laughs> oh, man. But if they do trade for Deshaun, I don't know what they're going to do. So they're going to have no draft picks. Their team stinks right now. I mean, Deshaun playing at his best. Like, he set career highs and the Texans went 4-12. and It's like, he can only do so much if the rest of the team stinks. Now, a lot of this team was brought back from the defense that was supposed to be really good last year. Led the league in takeaways. And then now, it's just, uh, what does this phrase go? How you doing? Keep it moving or something like that. Like this game, I'm not really, now knock on wood, I'm not, I've never been nervous for the Dolphins in Josh Allen's career. It's never happened. Like we said, he's six and one. He dominates the Dolphins. He has sunned the Dolphins numerous, numerous times. They're outscoring the Dolphins 122 to 54. So like, that's just the past three games. That's not even like <laughs> over the stretch. Like, let's just go back and see the score lines of each and every Bills Dolphins game over the past four years or since Josh Allen's been in the league. So we obviously had 35 nothing this year. Then last year, we had a close one at Miami, 28 to 31. Josh Allen, his first 400 yard game. And then he had 56 to 26, where two through three interceptions against the Bills' backup squad. And then you had 31 21. And then you had the 37-20 game in 2019. And then 2018, obviously, like we said, they lost to them the first time they played them 21-17. And then they obliterated them 42-17. Josh Allen had over 200 yards passing and 100 yards rushing in this game, while Zay Jones led the team in receiving. So when I say that was Josh Allen's best game statistically, I mean that. You look at the Josh Allen's receivers in this game, Zay Jones, Chris Ivory, Jason Kroom, Robert Foster... Uh, soon to be gone, Shady McCoy, who got 26 yards rushing on the game and was outrushed by Chris Ivory, Kyle Williams, and Ray Ray McLeod. That was Josh Allen's leading receivers against the Dolphins on that day. They're going to obliterate the Dolphins. Now, I'm scared of the 14. Now, I'm not, again, 14-point spreads scare me. Bills are coming off a loss, but this team's really good. So I'm not really worried, but... For that, that line scares me. Then we've got the Panthers-Falcons should be fun. 49ers-Bears. Steelers-Browns. Eagles-Lions. Titans-Colts. Bengals-Jets. The Mike White versus Joe Burrow show that we were all anticipating. Then we got Rams-Texans. And then we've got the Chargers-Patriots, which should be a lot of fun. And then Jaguars-Seahawks. For some reason, that's a 3 o'clock game. <laughs> I guess it's in Seattle. Makes sense. Uh, Washington football team versus the Broncos. Bucks-Saints. And then Sunday night football is Cowboys-Vikings, which, again, we will be there. We will be at the Cowboys-Vikings game rocking ref uniforms. So we'll be cheering on the referees. And the Cow the Vikings, actually, are one-point favorites in this game. One-and-a-half-point favorites over the Cowboys. And then Monday night football, we got the Giants and the Queefs. So that'll be a very fun day. But I'm excited. Again, there'll be no show on Monday. So I hope you don't get too upset at me about that. But I'm very... This is going to be a fun weekend. Chargers-Patriots going to be a lot of fun. Bears-49ers could be fun to a certain extent. I guess it could be kind of fun. Brown-Steelers will be fun, as it always is. There's always some sort of bitter thing there. There's always some hit there. I don't know who's starting for the Browns. I don't know if Case Keenum's in line to start again or Baker Mayfield's back. I guess time will tell on that. I'll have to look up, do some research for that game. Colts-Titans should be a pretty fun game. (laughs) I mean, Rams-Texans, 14.5-point favorites for the Rams in that one. Bucks Saints, fun. Jameis' first start against his old team. And then Sunday Night Football, Cowboys-Vikings. Hopefully Kirk Cousins can get a primetime dub. I'd rather, I'm kind of conflicted, though, because I'd love to sit and rub it in a little bit. 
that the, I've seen the I've been to the Viking Stadium twice and seen them lose both times. But I don't want the Cowboys to win. Screw the Cowboys. I told one of my friends that I'm going with, I was like, hey, you don't you don't quit acting up here. I'm gonna cheer for the Cowboys. And right after I said that, about two seconds later, I said, actually, I don't know if I can do that. I'm gonna take that back swiftly. <laughs> Please do not remember that I said that. I will never cheer for the Cowboys. Never ever will I ever cheer for the Cowboys. But final thing on the Logan Blackman show for this Friday. Let's take a quick sip of water because it's going to be a big one. You remember how I said we're going to have a mock draft on November 5th? Well, I lied. I did it to throw you off a little bit. We have got a midseason mock draft right now. Oh my goodness. We have been working on it for about a week and a half now. But the more I work on it, the more I'm scared the draft order is going to change. And I already like what I've got right now. <laughs> so that's the main reason why I'm doing it now versus later. Because I'm just scared that it's going to keep changing. Well, it's obviously going to keep changing. And this is the order of what it is right now. This is not projected order. This is exactly what it looks like at this point in time. So things are obviously subject to change. But at this point in time, this is what it looks like. And there's some things that... I had to think about it a little bit, had to change around in here, but I think I like this one. And again, it's mid-season. It's obviously not going to look like this in in April or May or whenever the draft comes around because it's just not. The draft order is not going to be the same. There's going to be players that inevitably get hurt. We're going to have combine issues. We're going to have players surging up draft boards. But as we sit here right now on October 28th, happy birthday to Johnny and Caleb, by the way. It's their birthday today. Uh, this will be different come April. But I just wanted to do one now. Uh, everybody's dropping them. Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay released their player rankings. So I was like, well, I don't have my player rankings done, but I'm getting close to revealing, getting done with a mock draft. So that'll be kind of fun. So let's do it. Let's actually do it. So right now, the draft order, we'll just read out the top 10 for the order. I'm not going to try. I don't want to go over every single pick. We'll see how this goes because this might take up an hour. Maybe. I mean, it's 32 picks. And you spend two minutes on each pick, it's going to be an hour. <laughs> so, over an hour. So, I'm going to try and be as fast as possible. I'm not going to go through each every pick, dissect each and every pick like I would normally do. But I do want to give some in-depth analysis for in certain things. Some that are not as obvious, because I think there are some obvious picks in here. Like, number one, the Detroit Lions taking Kayvon Thibodeau. I think that you got a GM and Brad Holmes... That was in L.A., at least I think it's Brad Holmes. Again, I, I did this on Wednesday, too. He was in the scouting department in Los Angeles when the Rams drafted Jared Goff. There's a reason they wanted Jared Goff in the trade. Because they could have done some stupid three-team trade and sent Jared Goff somewhere else. Because you see that all the time in sports. But Jared Goff went to Detroit. I think the Lions have more issues on their roster than just quarterback. And I don't think they're necessarily looking at quarterback. And we've talked about this before. This isn't the greatest quarterback draft class of all time. We're going, to we're going to get to a kind of surprising one here in a little bit. But Thibodeau is an athletic freak coming off the edge. He's great against the run. He's great against the pass. The Lions defense has been bad for a while now, mainly under Matt Patricia. It's getting better now. The players are fighting for Dan Campbell, which I think is really cool. But they're just not getting it over the line. I think if you get a guy like Thibodeau, I'm not saying it would rectify everything, but it definitely help ensure their or get their defense better. Because the offense realistically, the offense isn't that terrible. Like, you look at some of the pieces they got on offense. We've gone over their off the line before of, like, 
uh, Decker, Ragnow. I know they're both hurt, but then you got Sewell, TJ Hawkinson, DeAndre Swift, Jamal Williams. Jared Goff's not a terrible quarterback. I'm not saying he's not he's not good, but he's not terrible. And then you've got some decent young wide receivers. Nothing spectacular. Well, we'll get the Lions have another pick in the first round. We'll see if they get a wide receiver then. But looking at the defensive side of things, they need some upgrades there. And I think you start off with the best overall player in the draft in Kayvon Thibodeau, if they still have the number one pick. Number two, and this is where I had to change it. I have the Eagles drafting Malik Willis. And I didn't really come to this decision. It, it kind of happened last minute, if I'm being 100% honest with you. I know he's not number one in my quarterback rankings at this point in time, but I think come around to April, his skill set will set himself apart to where he will be back at the number one spot. If we're just talking about game time right now, he's not the number one because he's had three games that I haven't played really that great in. Middle Tennessee State, Louisiana Monroe, North Texas. He's going to need to get back on his horse a little bit more. But I think once we get around to April, more to with the combine in February or March, I can't remember exactly when the combine is, but I think that's where it'll start to push himself up because comparing him to Matt Corral, if we're looking at it from a draft standpoint, not necessarily what they're doing on the field, which is what we've been doing this year, has been, you look at his arm strength, it's better. It's not like insane, like there's a huge crater gap between him and Corral in regards to arm strength. Matt Corral is a very live arm as well, but Malik Willis is a lot faster and a lot more athletic than Matt Corral, which isn't saying Corral's not athletic because Corral can move. We've seen that numerous times this season. Again, he rushed for 195 yards against Tennessee. Didn't need to do a lot last week against LSU because they needed to take it back a little bit and settle down because, dude, you're going to die here. I think he's developed really good as a leader as well. But Malik Willis, I think his skill set's just unmatched in regards to that. And why have him going to the Eagles? Like I've And I've said before, I think this is a little too early to draft a quarterback this year. But then I've started, I went back in my mind a little bit, went in my memory banks, and I remember, now this is not an example you should probably use, but for the Giants in 2019 or 2020, when, no, 2019, when they drafted Daniel Jones, everybody said draft Daniel Jones later. But the problem is, here's the thought process you have to go to, and I'll, put, I'll show you an example with the Bills too. You have a player you like, you're like, oh, we can get him later. Why risk it? You just take the player now. And that's why I think with Malik Willis here, like the Bills did that. They drafted TJ Graham, I believe, the wide receiver, in the third round because they thought they could get Russell Wilson in the fourth round. And then a few picks later, Russell Wilson goes to the Seattle Seahawks and the rest is history. Malik Willis, I think, should go to the Eagles. Have you seen how the Eagles have handled the whole quarterback situation in regards to going back all the way to February, March, when Zach Wilson has pro day, People were talking about how the Eagles tried to trade up before the Niners did with the Dolphins. People tried, they were like, oh, they're trying to trade up for Zach Wilson. It didn't work because the, he wasn't falling past the Jets. The Jets were taking him. So there was that. And then you had them trading for Gardner Minshew, which might not seem like a lot on face value, but it's a quarterback that has a lot of experience in the NFL in the past few seasons that could challenge for Jalen Hurts' starting spot. You have Joe Flacco there, and Nick Sirianni was very coy about who's going to be the starting quarterback. He delayed that all offseason, even though everybody and their mom knew who the best quarterback was in the Philadelphia Eagles organization. He kept delaying it. I don't think the Eagles are that dedicated to Jalen Hurts. I think Jalen Hurts is the least of the Eagles' problems this year. I think Jalen Hurts is a very hard worker. I think he's talented. 
and I think he's a very good leader. I think those are all very important things to be in quarterback, but I don't know if the Eagles, as the organization, is behind it. I can totally understand the players being behind it, but as an organization, I don't know if they're behind it. And when you see a guy like Malik Willis and that skill set, you go, we want him. Like You watch Zach Wilson. Malik Willis can do everything Zach Wilson was doing, except he's faster. Like, If the Eagles wanted Zach Wilson as bad as what reports said, no, again, it's just reports, then I think they'll draft a quarterback this year. I had Aiden Hutchinson here like two hours ago. And then I changed it because of the fact, like, man, Malik Willis, I had him going like 17th to the Falcons. And I sat there and I was like, do I think he'll fall all the way to 17? No, not at all. And I saw a mock draft that had Malik Willis going 13 to the Eagles. And the Eagles have two first round, three first round draft picks and one of them coming up at six. And I was like, if you have a quarterback, I understand what different positions you'd pass on them to draft someone else. Quarterbacks, you can't really afford to do that. Quarterback is the most important position on the football field. I know there's a lot of people out there that go like, the offensive line, without them, they can't move. With defensive ends, they get up to the quarterback. But you need a starting franchise quarterback. And if you want one, think you can get one, don't wait until the 13th pick when you passed on him twice. Now there's a really... There's an opportunity for that because I guess technically the Ravens did that with Lamar Jackson. They passed on him twice in the first round and then traded back into the first round to take him 32nd. So maybe there is an opportunity for that. The Washington football team didn't trade up to get Dwayne Haskins. They waited at 15. So maybe there's an opportunity. But I'm going to go with the mindset that if you see a guy you like, don't risk him going somewhere else because there's a team right behind them at number three that could definitely take a quarterback. And that's the Houston Texans who I have taking Aiden Hutchinson. I think if even if they tr- so hypothetically speaking, if they trade for Deshaun Watson or trade Deshaun Watson, they'll have Tua, Davis Mills, and Tyra Taylor still on the roster. Now I guess I don't know how long Tyra Taylor's contract is. I I would expect it to be a one year deal, but from what it sounds like they like Davis Mills. He's played well up until this point. He's been the second best rookie quarterback in the NFL up until this point. Mac Jones has been number one. He's number two. And the Texans have a lot of needs on their roster. This team stinks. The Eagles are not, they're bad, but they're not as bad as Houston. (laughs) Houston is terrible. And the quarterback situation is not necessarily their biggest concern. Laramie Tunsil's out. They have no receivers, really. They have no run game. They just traded Mark Ingram, so where does it go from there? Defensively, they need to fix some things because they allow a crap ton of points. You look at some of the biggest games they played this year, like against the Colts, the Bills, and the Titans, or in the Cardinals, my bad. They've lost by a combined score of 102 to 8. Now you can go on one hand, well, the offense isn't moving anywhere, but the defense sure as hell ain't stopping anybody. Josh Allen threw an interception on the first play of the game against the Texans, and their offense couldn't do anything, and their defense in the same breath couldn't stop them from scoring 40 points in the rain. I think the Texans have a lot more issues than Davis Mills, and if they get the trade for Deshaun Watson, they'll have another first-round pick so they can change those. But I think they'll go after Aiden Hutchinson. You just cut J.J. Watt this offseason. You need some more edge rushers. I know, and I understand, they have had Jonathan Greenard be pretty good this year. He has six sacks to his name this year. But really, I think they're going to go with another edge rusher here. I could definitely see corner here. Their secondary is pretty garbage as well. But defensively, they need to sort some things out. I think they can figure some things out on offense, especially if you get Tua. Is Tua or Davis Mills worse than the quarterbacks in this draft class? I don't know. 
Time will tell on that. But I think the Texans do like Davis Mills. So maybe we have a three-team trade here with the Dolphins. So maybe Tua goes somewhere else. The Texans stick with Davis Mills and Tyrod. I don't know. But I, if I'm Houston, I would look at someone like Aiden Hutchinson or Derek Stingley, who I have number four going to the Jets. Their secondary is not very good. Okay, saying the least. They're the only team in the NFL without an interception this season. The only team. Now, they've only allowed seven touchdowns. And before the Falcons game, they were led the league in least amount of touchdowns allowed with two, at least passing touchdowns. But they have no interceptions. They need a lockdown corner. They have some decent pieces on defense, but they need that guy. They have Carl Lawson who coming off, who should be coming off an injury next year. I think he tore his Achilles, I'm not sure. But Derek Stingley, though he's been hurt the past two seasons, this is a prototypical shutdown corner. And with Robert Sala being a defensive head coach and drafting all offense pretty much last year, look at their first four picks. Zach Wilson, Elijah Vera Tucker, uh, Elijah Moore, and then... Michael Carter from North Carolina, they're going to want to look somewhere on defense with their first pick. There's some good defensive players that should be available in these first four picks. And Derek Stingley is a guy that I think the Jets would look at and go, that's a shutdown guy we need on our team. Because you got a lot of young quarterbacks. Deshaun Watson could be coming to the division rather soon. So you got Josh Allen and Deshaun Watson and then a young Mac Jones. You're going to need a guy that can lock down at least one side of the field to make things harder for them, which is something the Jets haven't had in a long time. So I would like them going with Derek Stingley in this draft. But I do think Evan Neal is a logical pick there as well, but I have him going to Jacksonville. Evan Neal is a versatile as hell off to lineman. He can play guard or tackle, which is what you need. For him being 6'7", 350 pounds, for how good he moves and how versatile he is, that's damn impressive. (laughs) It, It should be illegal to be as big and as mobile as he is. Like, he has played... Right tackle, he's played left tackle, he's played right guard. He's done everything. And the Jaguars, though Jawan Taylor and Cam Robinson haven't been that bad in comparison, I think they've been actually relatively <laughs> relatively decent this year comparatively. But Robinson, it'll be a free agent after this season. If you re-sign him, that's fine. But you would want a guy like Evan Neal, a fr- possibly franchise-saving left tackle. Because the Jets, why didn't give Evan Neal to the Jets? You look at some of the pieces they have in the O-line, Elijah Vera Tucker's young, and Makai Becton dislocated his, his kneecap. So I think he'll be back next year. And we, we might they have another first-round pick. They have another top-10 pick. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But I think Evan Neal going to the Jaguars makes a lot of sense. I think it makes a lot of sense. He'll open up holes for your run game as well. you got two really good running backs. We haven't seen Travis Etienne play, but he's still a really good running back when he does play. Obviously, have James Robinson there, Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, I like Evan Neal going to the Jags. And then number six... We have Kyle Hamilton going to the Eagles. This dude can do everything. And I feel kind of bad for putting him at six, but it always seems to have a guy that should definitely go higher, go a little bit later. And six isn't that late, but it should be kind of surprising that he lasts on the board this long. You look at some of the other safeties that have dropped a little bit. Minka Fitzpatrick dropped to 11. Derwin James dropped to 17. Then you had Jamal Adams dropping to six as well in 2017, which was kind of a surprise because no one really thought he'd slip past the Bears at three, and then they traded up to draft Trubisky. But Kyle Hamilton, we've already talked about him. He can play as a free safety. He can play as a center fielder. Or he can play up on the line of scrimmage and block stuff run lanes. Like, this dude can just do everything. He's six foot four, like 220 pounds or something like that. He's a monster. And he's quick as hell. He's long and can make plays all over the field. I put a video in here of him making a play against Florida State. He starts on the right hash. We're talking about from the defensive side of things. Starts on the right hash and make, picks the ball off on the left sideline. 
It should be illegal to move like that. But for some reason, safeties usually fall a little bit later in the draft than what their talent really says. Like last year, we had no safeties draft in the first round. The year before that, we didn't have a safety draft in the first round. Like, it happens. But Kyle Hamilton, I think, is just a freaking unicorn and a cheat code at the safety position to where he'll be an easy, easy top 10 pick. I think he should be a top three pick, but that's just not how the draft board worked out this time. Number seven, the Giants, DeMarvin Leal from AM. DeMarvin Leal is just like Evan Neal, similar sounding names, where he's super versatile. You look at this. Leal has played 403 snaps at defensive tackle, 223, just 23, not 223, 23 at nose tackle, 33 at DN, and 223 as a stand-up outside linebacker. Dude can do everything. And for the Giants who have given up 400 yards a game, 2,400 yards this season, they've given up 50 yards or more per game than they did last year. We're talking about just what they looked like last year, and expectations for their defense was that they'd be better this year. They're not. And... DeMarvin Leal can just do everything for you on the D-line, edge rusher, whatever. I think someone like Dave Gettleman would love to have a guy like DeMarvin Leal. Number eight, the Jets. I have them taking Tyler Linderbaum, the center from Iowa. It's not often you see centers go up this high in the draft. It's very rare <laughs> that this happens. But I think Tyler Linderbaum is just that special from the center position. Like, you look at what he's done at Iowa. He didn't allow a single sack in 2019 or 2020. He's allowed two this year. So I guess you could say he's having a down year. But we already knew he was a great run blocker. That's what he's, his forte is, is how good he is at a run blocker. And for the Jets, they just need some help on the O-line. doesn't really matter where it comes from. They just need some help on the O-line. And Gre- Tyler Lindebaum just feels like a Robert Sala-style player. I could see him going earlier, if I'm being 100% honest with you. I like Tyler Linderbaum a lot. It'll open up holes for the running backs they have because they have a good group of running backs, a young group of running backs. They'll just keep Zach, Day- Zach Wilson upright. Always good to have a nice relationship with your center as a quarterback, and having one like Tyler Linderbaum will be huge for him moving forward and will help keep him upright. So now you have an off the line with Becton when he's back healthy, Elijah Barrett Tucker, and now Tyler Linderbaum, which I'm assuming they're going to go out this offseason and get someone else too. Like, that's pretty solid. That's pretty solid. You can get some good tackles later in the draft as well. Number nine, Washington. I haven't taken Matt Corral. Talked about how last show we like Taylor Heineke. Think he works hard. Think his teammates love playing for him. Like you hear Terry McLaurin and Chase Young speaking up how they would always love to play with Taylor Heineke. But that will only get you so far. And I think Washington's starting to realize that, and the fans are starting to realize that, and they need something else at quarterback. And I think Matt Corral could be that. Matt Corral is having one of the best seasons in college football this year. He is. One of the favorites, if not the favorite, to win the Heisman Trophy this year. I'm excited to see what he does in regards to the rest of the season. We talked about playing against Auburn this week, a game where he struggled, or team he struggled with last year to a certain extent, 156 or 158 yards passing in that game. But he's talented. He's got all the arm talent in the world. He's showed how mobile he is this year. He's worked as a leader this offseason as well. He's cut down on the mental lapses. Like We haven't seen him throw five or six interceptions in the game this season, which I see as a positive, because you throw 11 interceptions in two games last year, that's not great. But he's played awesome this year, and I think he'd be a perfect fit for Washington as their new starting quarterback. And their offensive coordinator is, um, oh, crap. They have a decently young offensive coordinator, if I'm not mistaken. I think he'd have a lot of fun with Matt Corral. Number 10, Miami Dolphins. This one might be a surprise, not necessarily of the team and the position they're picking, but the player. I have Traylon Burks from Arkansas going number 11, number 10 to the Miami Dolphins. I think Burks 
athletically speaking, is unmatched in this draft. When you look at how big he is and how well he moves for a guy as big he is as he is, for being 6'3", like 225, 230 pounds, he moves like somebody that is, should be a lot smaller. And then when you look at him out-muscled defenders and how much he beats people up, he should be playing, he's playing like he's someone way bigger. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And I think when we come around to the combine, that's where he'll start separating himself a little bit because statistically, he's not going to be up there. He's just not. Arkansas is a run-first offense. You look at some of the players they have, like K.J. Jefferson is a six foot five, 250-pound quarterback. He ain't passing the ball a lot. He's got a very strong arm, but they're not passing the ball as much as what they probably should, which I think it hurt Traylon Burks to some people, but I think his just athletic ability is unmatched when you look at the other people in this draft class. And if you look at, according to Pro Football Focus, since 2020, quarterbacks have a near-perfect passer rating when throwing to him. Like, this dude's a beast. And I want him to be in a situation where they're going to use him well and use a pass game around. If they get Deshaun Watson, they obviously won't have this pick. He'll be somewhere else. But if you look at what they do in the red zone, Mike Gesicki's a freaking monster in the red zone, athletic freak at tight end. Then you'd have him. Then Jalen Waddell out wide. Devontae Parker can't stay healthy. And Will Fuller's on a one-year deal. So you look at what the Dolphins could do at wide receiver, have him and Jalen Waddle out wide, that'd be one of the best young wide receiver tandems in the NFL. Now, I toyed with the idea of giving him an O-lineman here because Austin Jackson and Robert Hunt, though they drafted them both at tackle, both are playing guard right now. <laughs> and though that's not a bad thing, when you draft tackles, you want them to stay at tackle because that's what you use high, highest draft picks for is tackles. And both of them are guard. Austin Jackson just hasn't played very well since being in the NFL anyways. He was going to be like a project piece. He was the youngest player in the 2020 NFL draft, I believe. Could be wrong about that. I know he's one of the one of the youngest players in the 2020 draft. I don't know if he was the youngest, but I believe that's what it was. Looking at someone, one of the tackles in this draft, maybe that's a possibility. But I think getting someone like Burks would be sweet to see because the Dolphins, Fuller's been not healthy a lot, and Devontae Parker's not been healthy. So it's really just been the Jalen Waddle show and the Mike Kosicki show and I think adding Burks would be awesome for the Miami Dolphins. Then number 11, Kair Elam, athletic corner from Florida. They just traded Stephon Gilmore to the Panthers. Now they need someone to help partner J.C. Jackson. I think Kair Elam could be that. I've kind of flip-flopped. This could be changed by the time this post gets released tomorrow or Friday, when you're listening to this, supposedly out. It might have changed because I think the top, outside of Stingley, the other three corners in Elam, Booth, and Gardner I think those guys could rotate anywhere you want. And you obviously got McDuffie, McCreary is there as well. But I think the first three I mentioned, if you put them in any order, I think you'd be fine. I just think that Elam's athletic upside might be greater than the other guys. Maybe. I'm not being, I'm not trying to be 100% confident here. But at 6'2", 200 pounds, that dude's got every tool to be an elite corner in the NFL. Let's just see if he gets onto it this year. He started off injured this year. He's missed three games this season. It's kind of be a little slower for him this year, but I think he's got all the athletic athletic tools to be a real threat at corner in the next level, and I think the Patriots love to have a guy like that. Number 12, the Broncos taking Charles Cross off to tackle for Mississippi State. He has a lot, I mean a lot, <laughs> of experience in pass blocking. We talked about that during the preseason with him having this insane number of pass blocking snaps because he's playing for Mike Leach, who loves to pass the ball. This year, he's doing the same thing. Last year, he played 528 pass blocking snaps, and this year he's played 366, which is tied for the fifth most in college football this year. Like, he's athletic as hell, 
can play both tackle spots well. And for the Broncos who just cut Juwan James, didn't really do anything to replace him this offseason, I think it'd be smart to get a guy like Charles Cross, who's athletic and can play both positions, as is really adept, adept to playing in a pass-first system, which is kind of what the Broncos are. When you look at all the weapons they have, I know Melvin Gordon's been nice. They have Javante Williams there as well, but they have a lot of weapons outside. If they figure out the quarterback, which they looks like they're trying to trade for a veteran this offseason, maybe they don't even have this pick, but if they do, I think they should take someone like Charles Cross. Uh, number 13, the Eagles taking Ahmad Gardner, Ahmad Sauce Gardner. You take a safety and then a corner. Your secondary's filled out, and I don't really think that they're the same thing. I mean, they're different positions, but people go like, oh, you addressed the secondary in the first pick. Why would you do it here again? Well, one of them is going to be playing all over the field. The other one's just going to be locking down a receiver. Ahmad Gardner has not allowed a single touchdown in college. Not once. Now, you can point that down to him playing in the AAC and not playing the toughest competition, but still, if it was that easy, then every corner in the AAC would have no touchdowns allowed this season. Like, dude's been playing freaking awesome this season. When Gardner... He's scored three touchdowns, allowed zero, so he scores more than he allows. He has a passer rating of 35.3 when people throw to him. When you spike the ball into the ground, you have a 39.6. So you have a better chance of just spiking the ball into the ground than you do targeting Ahmad Sauce Gardner, whose name on Cincinnati's roster is Ahmad Sauce Gardner, which is awesome. And a corner of corners will play more than 500 snaps since 2020. Ahmad Sauce Gardner has allowed the fewest yards, fewest first downs, and has not allowed a single touchdown over that span. Like, dude is a freaking baller. Now, and he's six foot three, like 200 pounds. Like, he's a freaking lengthy SOB that just doesn't allow anything past him. I could realistically see him going higher than this. But right now, again, this is subject to change with the corners. We could put this anywhere. I just think that right now we have him at 13, and him and Slay with Kyle Hamilton back there. Ooh, that's a, nice, that's a nice draft haul. Very nice draft haul right there. 14, the Panthers, Kenyon Green from Texas A&M. Guard-tackle hybrid, athletic, stocky build. Play both guard and tackle, as we just said. Panthers need help on the O-line. This is their weakest spot of their team. They've addressed the defense a lot in the past few drafts. They just traded Greg Little to Miami not too long ago. It was a guy they drafted in the second round two years ago. Or no, in 2020, so I guess a year ago. But that didn't work out. Obviously, the trade in Miami... But having a guy like Kenyon Green, who's played 81 snaps at left tackle, 112 snaps at left guard, 106 yard snaps at right guard, and then 142 snaps at right tackle, he can play anywhere. And whoever their quarterback is this next season, regardless if it's Darnold or Watson or, hell, even P.J. Walker, they would love to have a guy like Kenyon Green. He'd even open up lanes for Christian McCaffrey because he's had to block for a really good running back in Isaiah Spiller for the past few years at A&M. I think the Panthers would love to have a guy with that versatility of Kenyon Green. Number 15, the, the New York Giants taking Nicholas petit Frere from Ohio State. Has a lot of single stamp in his college career. Has a lot of one. Now, he hasn't played an insane amount of games in college, but he still hasn't allowed a single snap. Played both right and left tackle, which is where the Giants could use him. Andrew Thomas hasn't really panned out. When you have a draft class like that in 2020, where you have four really good first-round tackles, and you take the first one, for, worst one first, that kind of hurt. And the the best one went last in Tristan Wirfs. Hey, you know what? We had the Giants taking Tristan Wirfs. So why did they not just do that? I don't know. But, hey, rectify it. Nicholas Petit-Ferrar. You get a, leave a draft with Petit-Ferrar, and then you have Erfair, however you want to pronounce it, and then DeMarvin Leal. I think Giants fans would be really, really happy about that. Get Daniel Jones. Keep him upright. Keep Saquon Barkley healthy. This works all around. 16, 
along with the Willis pick, this is probably the most controversial one here. Uh, the Chiefs taking Chris Alave from Ohio State. I know their defense sucks, but when I look at the Chiefs and what they do to rectify things, what they usually do is go, well, let's try just to pass the ball around. And sometimes it works. And with how many excuses I've heard this year of Patrick Mahomes receivers not running the right routes, uh, dropping passes, I don't think the Chiefs would go into a season with just the receivers they have on the roster. Because outside of Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, who's really their other threat? I guess McCole Hardman can be at times. I guess Sprinkle can, or Pringle can be good at times. Uh, they have no real running game. The old line hasn't worked out that well. But defensively, they have a lot of holes. I don't know what they'd address here. I did have Jordan Davis here for a tiny bit. But when I had Willis go too, I had to change it to make my more aesthetically pleasing for me, <laughs> which you'll understand hopefully in a little bit. But I could totally see them going defense here. I, that's what I would do. But again, mock drafts aren't what you're supposed to do, like what I would do. This is what I think the team will do. Like, do I think if I'm the Eagles, would I take Malik Willis? No. I, I don't think Jalen Hurts is that big of an issue. I think we have a bit more issues on the roster than just Jalen Hurts. But from what the Eagles sound like, I don't know if they're committed to Jalen Hurts. That's my issue. So that's why here, the Chiefs, instead of trying to rectify the defense, they go in going, okay, let's get a wide receiver to help patch Mahomes out. Because, again, the receivers are running the wrong routes, scoring to people. They can't catch balls. So we got to get something like that. And Chris Olave is probably the fastest in this first round of wide receivers that we got here. We got six, no, five first-round wide receivers in this one. He's the second one. He's probably the best route runner as well. He just scores touchdowns in 30 games at Ohio, or 33 games at Ohio State. He scored 30 touchdowns. Like, this dude is a beast. He's a little on the smaller side, but the speed thing really fits into what the Chiefs do. I think he'd be a nice fit there, even though it might not be on face value what they really need, like on defense, but they don't have depth at wide receivers. So I think they could be fine getting either pick here. Because again, outside of Tyreek Hill and Kelsey, where else does he go with the ball? Doesn't really go to anyone else. That's why Travis Kelsey's had a thousand back-to-back thousand-yard seasons. Number 16, the Falcons taking Jordan Davis. In-state guy. Falcons defense needs improvement. You look at the D tackles for the Falcons run a 4-3 D or 3-4 defense. Their biggest nose tackle is 6'2", 309. Jordan Davis is 6'6", 340 pounds. That is illegal to be that big and how move as well as he does. Like, Jordan Davis doesn't get a lot of sacks, but what Jordan Davis does better than I think anybody in college football is soak up offensive linemen to open up holes for other team, other players to get sacks on the quarterback, at least get pressures on the quarterback. Like, he draws two to three offensive linemen against him because he's so massive. He moves people at will. We talked about this in the preseason, and then now after the Clemson game, people start talking about him a little bit more, and now everybody knows who he is. Georgia's defense is the best in the country by far. They are top two in both run and pass defense. They don't give up a lot of points. They give up like six points a game, which is ridiculous. And keeping an in-state product in-state for a team that will need some help on defense. The offense is fine. The offense is good. I mean, we got Matt Ryan, Kyle Pitts, Calvin Ridley. Run game will probably need some work a little bit more, but you ain't going to draft one in 17. Defense needs some help. A.J. Terrell's played well since being with the Falcons. He's had it better this year than he did his first year at the Falcons. Get some help on the D-line. Grady Jarrett's going to be awesome if they get a guy like Jordan Davis to get, clog up holes like that. Grady Davis going to have free runs with the quarterback. I think that would be awesome for the Falcons. 18, the Steelers. I have them taking Carson Strong from Nevada. Now, I think there's a strong chance 
that if Kenny Pickett keeps playing the way he does, he'll be the quarterback here for Pittsburgh. He plays in Pitt. And if you remember the last quarterback that Pitt's, the Steelers passed on from Pitt, look how well that guy turned out. You guys can try and figure that one out if you can't. I'm sorry. But the last quarterback they passed on from Pitt, that he wanted to play for Pitt. He's from Pitt. They passed on him. Turned out to be a Hall of Famer. So maybe they don't want to pass on Kenny Pickett for that reason. But at this point in time, Carson Strong has played he's playing his best football right now, which is what you need. I almost say he's been playing better. I I don't know if he's been playing better, but he's been playing really good. I think he fits that city very, very well. I know Pickett plays in Pittsburgh, so (laughs) that really doesn't matter. But you're playing in Nevada. He's played in cold weather a lot. He's the bigger dude. I think he'd work really well there. The thing is, he doesn't move very well, which is a little bit of an issue for me. I thought he'd move a little bit better this year, which he hasn't. But as of right now, I think Carson Strong going to Pitt makes a lot of sense. I don't think that they're going to go into a season with Mason Rudolph and Dwayne Haskins battling out for the starting job. I just refuse to believe that. So I would go with a guy like Carson Strong. Bigger dude, really strong arm. That's a guy that you could build your team around. He's got all the intangibles to be a stud NFL quarterback. Let's see if he actually puts it together. He's getting better as the season goes on. Hopefully it keeps going up so he can keep getting up, moving up draft boards. Number 19, the Vikings. I haven't taken Andrew Booth, the cornerback from Clemson. The Vikings cornerback situation is kind of an odd one. Bashad Breeland played terrible, borderline scout team at the beginning of the season, but has now actually played decent over the past few games. Uh, Patrick Peterson's on IR, but he's on a one-year deal. Breeland's on a one-year deal. Cam Dantzler hasn't been playing that great. Then you've got Jeff Gladney, who got unsurprisingly cut from the team this offseason. So the cornerback spot is a little bit of a, a question mark for the Vikings. Defensively, they just got question marks there, but... I think corner is probably their weakest part, if I had to be honest. And Andrew Booth, I think, is a complete corner. He's a tackler. Brent Venables, the D coordinator of Clemson, says he's one of the best tacklers he's ever seen. And I know he's the D coordinator at Clemson. Booth plays at Clemson. But and he might be biased. Might be biased. But, hey, Brent Venables has been around it. He's been a lot of, Brent around a lot of really good defenders. And if he says he's a really good tackler, I'll take his word for it. Now, Booth doesn't have an interception to his name, but I think his ceiling's really high. I think that's his big thing. He's very athletic. He came in the same draft or recruiting class as Derek Stingley. I like Andrew Booth, and I think the Vikings, if they if he's available, I think they'd be fine taking any of these real corners in this, this first round. But Booth, I think, would be a nice fit for the Vikings from his tackling standpoint. Uh, number 20, the Browns. I've taken George Kalarftis. You have Tat McKinley and Jadavian Clowney, both on one-year deals. Clowney's been on three teams in three years and Tack burned all his bridges in Atlanta. So I don't really know if either one of them will be on the team next year. So get a guy like Clark who can play both D and D tackle wherever. Powerful. That's the kind of guy you want. Midwest guy from Indiana. Plays for Purdue. Threat all over the place. I would love to see him with the Browns. I think he'd work very, very well with Miles Garrett. Similar size. 6'4", 275. Big dude. I'd love to see that. Uh, number 21, the Bills. Ikeem Ikonwu, he's an interior lineman slash O-tackle from NC State. He's playing left tackle for the, the Wolfpack right now. All I'm going to say about Ikeem Ikonwu is <laughs> this quote from an ACC offensive line coach. To me, he's the most feared offensive lineman in the ACC. He's similar to Makai Becton, but more of an interior guy. He's got so much, more, so much short area power and explosiveness. He's violent. You'd go and watch him on film and go, oh, wow, he's destroying people. He's got something in him that's not coached, that's... There's some real natural aggression and ferocity with the way he finishes and strikes. 
That's a gift. The way I describe him, this is now me talking, <laughs> is mauler. This dude just mauls people. And for the Bills, who don't, it's not necessarily like a massive need, but you look at the Bills' interior line, Cody Ford hasn't worked out. They drafted him in the second round, had him at tackle, that didn't work, moved him to the guard, then he got benched. And then John Feliciano, though I like him a lot, they can upgrade. And I think getting a guy like Ike McConwu would be a huge upgrade for the Buffalo Bills. Like, you look at two guards they had on their roster and traded one and cut the other, Quentin Spain and Wyatt Teller. And I will go forever to say that the Wyatt Teller trade is the worst trade Brandon Bean ever made. He was a very popular player within the Bills fan base. Was a sixth, seventh-round draft pick. They traded him for a sixth-round draft pick at the Browns. And everybody was like, oh, that one might come back to bite him. And then it did, as he's an all-pro or one of the best guards in the NFL, apart one of the best offensive lines in the NFL. So that one kind of hurts. But getting a guy like a Conwu would be awesome for the Bills. Play both guard and tackle. Mauler, that's what the Bills need. Someone that can help in the run game because he will destroy people. <laughs> he's a pancake freaking machine. That's what he is. Uh, the Chargers, Kingsley and Enigbar- Jeez. Enigbare, jeez. Kingsley and Enigbare, the South Carolina D-end, edge rusher, whatever you want to call him. Natural 3-4 outside linebacker, but can play a 4-3. Brandon Staley, defensive coach, is very good at switching around fronts so he can play in 3-4, play in a 4-3. However he wants to, he'll be fine because he switches Joey Bosa around a lot. You see that when you watch Chargers games quite a bit. They'll play him standing up. They'll play him with a hand in the dirt. And I think Kingsley could do that with relative ease. He's very explosive. He gets more pressures than he does sacks, which is on some accounts is as good as getting a sack. And especially when you have a guy like Joey Bosa on the other side from you, you're going to get those pressures paid off. <laughs> you're going to get some sacks in there as well. And the Chargers, they're one of the lower teams in the NFL in sacks this season. They're definitely going to want to rectify that, and getting a guy like Kingsley would definitely help in that front. But that being said, I do think there's a real chance the Chargers look at a wide receiver. Keenan Allen's going to turn 30 in April. And if you look at the roster, outside Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, they don't really have that great selection of wide receivers. So maybe they look at someone like a Garrett Wilson or Drake London from USC, Jahan Dotson, any of these wide receivers. Maybe they look at one of them, or Chris Olave or Traylon Burks. They fall this far. Maybe they look at them. But right now I'm going to go with the edge rusher. And speaking of Grant, Grant, geez, Garrett Wilson, we're going to have going to the Saints. They're in a weird stretch with Mike Thomas at this point with the surgery, the not wanting to play for the team. They don't really have any real weapons outside of Mike Thomas, who hasn't played this year. Getting Garrett Wilson's a guy who I think we had going to the Saints in the offseason or the preseason. I can't remember exactly. Let me take a sip of water here. But this is one just makes sense. Wilson's not anything. Like, you just look at him. He doesn't do anything, like, amazing. But somehow, some way, he's always open. It just always seems to be like that. He's not ex incredibly explosive. But the dude's so, uh, what do you call it, silky smooth with what he does to where he's just behind defenders. It's just always what he looks like. He's leading the team in Ohio State in receiving yards right now. Above Alave, so there's their little rivalry for you. But I think Alave's just, I think he's a better route runner just, and I think he's more explosive than him just. So that's why I have Wilson falling a little bit more below Alave. Uh, 24, we have the Cowboys taking Drake Jackson, the edge rusher from USC. He's kind of an outside linebacker. Uh, D-end hybrid type thing, which you see a lot in the NFL now, or not in the, just the NFL, but in college football. Wait, we talk about a lot of hybrids here. But the Cowboys this season, 
Uh, they're ranked towards the bottom in sacks this year. Drake London's a very explosive defensive end, edge rusher, whatever you want to call him again. He's a little bit, and there were some worries this season that he wasn't like, they wanted to see more from him. They saw the athletic traits he had and needed to see a little bit more of them, and they saw that this year. I think the Cowboys could use him. They play more of a 4-3 defense, maybe sometimes rotate a 3-4 with, uh, oh crap, what's his name? <laughs> Quinn, Dan Quinn there, who's had the defense playing really well. They just can't get up to the quarterback, it seems like. I think getting a guy like Jackson would definitely help out in that regard. Uh, the Titans taking Devin Lloyd, linebacker from Utah. Defensively, over the past few years, the Titans have kind of stunk. I did have a cornerback on here, but they have pretty decent depth at corner, even though they, they've they been dropping like freaking flies. I wouldn't be surprised they did take a corner here, like uh, Trent McDuffie or Roger McCreary here from Auburn, because of the fact you have Caleb Farley's injury history. Christian Fulton's hurt right now. Janoris Jenkins, Jenkins is there. Elijah Molden, you drafted him last year from Washington. Greg Mabin somehow still in the NFL. Don't know how that's worked out, but he's on the Titans. So maybe they do look at corner, but their linebacking core is not really the deepest. So looking at a guy like Devin Lloyd who can make plays just all over the field, that's the kind of guy I think that uh, Mike Vrabel would definitely want as a former NFL linebacker himself. 26, I'm trying to go a little bit faster because my throat's starting to go on me. Uh, 26, we have the Bengals taking Trevor Penning from you and I. We have our first FCS player in here. This dude's just mean. <laughs> he's just a mean, big old meanie. And he's a monster. He's six foot seven, 321 pounds. Like, you lose Riley Reef. Coming in this offseason was big because that helped them go towards Jamar Chase perfectly fine, which is what we said going into the draft. Now it's worked out fairly well, <laughs> I guess you would say, going into that. But Riley Reeves on a two-year deal, but it's more like a one-year because unless the Bengals go to him to try and restructure it, he's going to be gone after this year. So it's kind of like a void-year type thing. But with that, I think they could go after someone like Penning, who's just mean. Again, he's just a big old meanie. He towers over Jonah Williams, their starting left tackle, and like Spencer Brown, just like every you and I off to lineman ever, it seems like, he's just freaking huge. So yeah, I would love to see him play for the Bengals, stick in the Midwest. I think he's a very good blocker for Joe Burrow, regardless if it's on the right side or left side. Played left side at UNI with Spencer Brown would play on the right side. But dude's just a mauler. Dude will pancake anybody. He just beats people up. I mean, you have to when you're 6'7", 321 pounds. Number 27, Trent McDuffie going to the Bucks, Athletic. He's not very big in comparison. He's like 5'11", 188 or something like that. I can't really remember exactly. But he's athletic as hell. And Washington has one of the... Actually, no. They have the number one pass defense in college football this season. Like, they are in... It's an insane, insane defense. And I got to make sure I can get the stats up here. I used to, okay, here we go. He's not over six foot tall, but they're, Washington's given up 140 yards a game through the air. 981 total. They've intercepted more passes than the touchdowns they've allowed. And opposing quarterbacks only average a 58.3% completion percentage against them. With McDuffie being the main one. And Washington is not a good football team. They're not. But their pass defense is really good. And Trent McDuffie is a huge reason before why that is. Even though he's only 5'11". Now, Roger McCreary is bigger than him. So maybe you'd look at a guy like Roger McCreary here. But I'm going to go with McDuffie because he's. I think he's more athletic than McCreary is. Just, just. At number 28, the Lions taking Drake London. He's having an insane year. He's having an absolutely second in the nation receiving yards, 1,003 receiving yards. But USC, if I had to play devil's advocate here, USC is extremely one-dimensional. Slovis has played off a lot this year. They have really no other weapons outside of Drake London. And with Slovis playing as inconsistent as he is, he just throws to Drake London all the time. <laughs> it's just 
a one-root offense, but Drake London's thriving in that. And Drake London is making catches all over the field. Slovis is underthrowing passes. He's not hitting him at rightly, but hey, you know what? London is making all these catches. His separation is not insane. He's not the fastest out there, but at 6'5", I think 210, dude just catches everything. He's got a huge catch radius, and that would be awesome for the Lions moving forward. If, if giant if, he's available at this point. <laughs> if he's available here. Uh, number 29, the Las Vegas Raiders. I have Jackson Kirkland from Washington. Monster dude, 6'7", about 3'10", can play both guard and tackle. Sounds like they're moving Alex Leatherwood to guard, or they did move Alex Leatherwood to guard. They drafted 17th overall last year, which didn't really work out for a tackle spot. They expected him to move to guard anyways. A lot of people did, and they started the boom at guard, a tackle. Then they just moved in the guard. You have Colton Miller on one side. Get another Pac-12 tie, get another Pac-12 off to lineman there as well at Kirkland. And I think you give the Raiders a decent off to line moving forward. Big dude, keep Derek Carr upright. That's what the main thing is. Derek Carr is playing pretty nice football at this point in time. So why not try to keep him upright and get himself some big off the lineman like Kirkland? On uh, number 30, the Packers. This one is something that I don't know if it'll actually happen because of the fact that the Packers haven't drafted the first-round receiver since 2001. It was Javon Walker. Or 2002, my bad. But I think... I think they'd have to get look at a guy like Jahan Dotson and go, yeah, we want to take him, especially if this is Aaron Rodgers' last year. I think one final middle finger to Aaron Rodgers from the Packers organization would be drafting a wide receiver. I think that would be so fun. With how this whole situation has been handled on both sides, I think that this would be the most this would be the most perfect thing ever that they draft a wide out the same year they let Rodgers go <laughs> or trade him or whatever. But Dotson is making plays all over the field for Penn State. He's a deep threat. Can make every catch thrown to him. Make catch every ball thrown to him. He hasn't had a single drop this year in 78 or 79 targets this year. Dude's a baller. And I think the Packers, if Devontae Adams is true with what he says about how wherever Rodgers goes, I go. And then you have a receiving core of Lazard, Scantling, and whoever the hell else you have. I would go with someone like Dotson. I don't even know what the contracts are looking like for the rest of the Packers receivers. They might be fading anyways. So even if Adams is there... Get a guy like Dotson because I think he'd be a really, really good wide receiver moving forward. 31, the Ravens. I haven't taken Darian Kirkland from Kentucky guard tackle hybrid. With how weird Alejandro Villanueva's been in Baltimore and how injured Ronnie Stanley's been over the past few seasons, I think they need to invest in some sort of offensive alignment here. And Kirkland can play both guard and tackle. And I think the thing that would benefit the Ravens with Kirkland more than anything Kirkland's got a really mean streak. He's a really stocky build off the lineman. He's played a lot of left tackle this year at Kentucky. Even though they're expected to move him to guard, he's dominated at tackle. And he's a really, really, really good run blocker. That's his main thing, which is what the Ravens do better than everybody in in the NFL, is run the football. Regardless if it's Lamar Jackson, a healthy J.K. Dobbins, or whoever else they have at running back, they run the ball. They've got good weapons on the outside, or decent weapons. Compared to last year, it's like a world <laughs> world difference outside. Now, I did have them taking Jahan Dotson, but I had some other things changed around as well with the Packers spot, so Jahan Dotson could fall here. But I think just watching Villanueva play and how off he's looked, I think getting a tackle or a guard, whichever one, would work miracles for the Baltimore Ravens this season. Because even then, like the interior O-line for them has not been great or amazing, it's something they could do, and I think Kirkland, with the versatility play both guard and tackle, would fill in nicely there for the Ravens. And then 32, the Cardinals taking Adam Anderson from Georgia. Now you have like Chandler Jones, obviously, requested a trade this offseason right after J.J. Watt signed. 
But uh, he said he figured that stuff out. You have Marcus Gold in there. You have some good players on your team, but you could get another linebacker like that, and Adam Anderson, who could help add some more pressure for the Cardinals' defense. Maybe corner is something you could look at here. Maybe Roger McCreary is a guy you could look at for the Cardinals. But right now, now this is how I'm sitting right now. This could change by the time this is actually out. Roger McCreary could be here. But for right now, I like Adam Anderson and explosiveness and getting around the edge from the outside linebacker spot. Cardinals run a 3-4 defense. Adam Anderson, very natural in a 3-4 defense. So I think that would work wonders for both parties involved. So that's what I've got for you on this mid-season mock draft. So just real quick going over this again. Number one, the Lions taking Kayvon Thibodeau. The Eagles taking Malik Willis at number two. Three, we have the Texans taking Aiden Hutchinson. Jets taking Derek Stingley at four. At five, the Jaguars taking Evan Neal. Eagles at six taking Kyle Hamilton. Seven, we have the Giants taking DeMarvin Leal. Eight, we have the Jets taking Tyler Linderbaum. Nine, we have the Washington football team taking Matt Corral. We have Traylon Burks going to the Dolphins at 10. Kyrie Elam, or one of the other three corners we mentioned, go to the Patriots at 11. Then we have Charles Cross going to the Broncos at 12. Ahmad Sauce Gardner going to the Philadelphia Eagles at 13, but he could go somewhere else there as well. Kenyon Green, the tackle guard hybrid from AM, going to the Panthers at 14. Nicholas Petit Freire going to the Ohio geez, going to the Giants at 15. Chris Olave, the wide receiver from Ohio State, going to the Chiefs at 16. Falcons taking Jordan Davis at 17. We have Carson Strong to the Steelers at 18. Then we have Andrew Booth going to the Vikings at 19. George Kalarftis going to the Browns at 20. 21, we have the Bills taking Ikeem Ekonwu. Jeez, Ekonwu, good Lord. 22, we have the Chargers taking Kingsley Enigbare. Jeez, I don't know why I keep struggling with that. 23, the Saints taking Garrett Wilson at 23. 24, the Cowboys take Drake London. 25, the Titans taking Devin Lloyd or Nicobe Dean, the linebacker from Georgia. I think either one could go there. 26, the Bengals taking Trevor Penning from Northern Iowa. 27, the Buccaneers taking Trent McDuffie or Roger McCreary, whichever one you want. 28, the Lions take Drake London from USC. The Raiders at 29 take Jackson Kirkland. 30, the Packers take Jahan Dotson. 31, Darian Kirkland going to the Baltimore Ravens. And 32, the Cardinals taking Adam Anderson, the outside linebacker from Georgia, or if you want it, Roger McCreary. So I hope that you enjoyed the show. It's a little bit longer show today, but I wasn't expecting the whole situation that we've had with the Blackhawks to fester the way it has. I think fester is the right way to call that with the whole Blackhawks organization look like a bunch of asshats right now. And that's that's putting it lightly, to be 100% honest with you. I hope everything gets sorted out on that end. I hope everything gets turned out for the best. I don't really care if it hurts the Blackhawks' legacy or anything. I just want things to get sorted out for the best possible thing on the human aspect of things and that means tarnishing the legacy of some of the players coaches whatever I don't care get the things sorted out that need to be sorted out and with that being said I hope you enjoyed this Friday edition of the Logan Blackman show go and check out mock draft the mid-season mock draft on the Logan Blackman show website I would greatly appreciate it it'll be posted on all forms of social media on Instagram Twitter Facebook Go and while you're at it, just go follow all those pages. Go like the Facebook page, YouTube channel. Go subscribe to that. And of course, go and follow me on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or subscribe, whatever they call it. And with that, I hope you enjoy. Reminder, we will not be here on Monday. We'll be coming back from Minnesota, the Vikings-Cowboys game. Hope you enjoyed the show today. If not, I can only apologize. But if you did, I greatly appreciate it. With that, I will see you all later. Peace.